I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken-for-granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. The RPN is delighted to host this conversation between Eric Shepard, University of California, Los Angeles, and Tony Sparks, San Francisco State University. What are priority research topics on impoverishment at this moment? Okay. So the first aspect of this is, is to conceptualize what we mean by impoverishment itself. If there's a standard definition, which means lack of, dis which is lack of disposable income. So the worldwide, the convention is to say less than $2 a day per household means you're poor. But impoverishment is not necessarily about a lack of money. Um, and, and, and just because you have a lack of money doesn't necessarily mean you're unable to support yourself and, and live well. So I would want us to think much more broadly about impoverishment in terms of the conditions under which people can achieve their livelihood possibilities, whether or not that's about money. So that, 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 that's a first um, aspect of this. The second aspect of this is to understand there, to think again, we, we, we will, we've, we've talked about this indirectly in, in the questions about relational space and so on, but to understand how impoverishment is not just a study of why poor places and poor people have failed on their own terms to become rich, to in some sense say that the, 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 the impoverishment is something to be studied in isolation and, and, and it's a problem of those people and places but to understand how impoverishment is linked, is linked with enrichment, how people who and places that have become prosperous and wealthy on the ways in which we think about those, those terms have done so at the expense of other places. And to dispense with what I think is the myth that globalizing capitalism is the only way to solve poverty by including people into the capitalist economic system with various kinds of institutional tricks, microfinance, private ownership of, the, of property and so on, on the grounds that they then can have the same conditions to become rich as everyone else. From my perspective, is a system that creates impoverishment and enrichment in, in, in ways which are intimately related to one another rather than the system that solves poverty. So we need to think about how impoverishment and enrichment of people and places are integrally connected with one another. Yeah, and, and we spoke about this earlier. You, you talked a little bit about this word, this idea in relation to your work in uh, Indonesia. I wonder if you could revisit that a little bit. Yeah, so, so, so 
Um, so so I, I'm stuck, I, along with Helga Leitner and, and a bunch of students, we, we're, we've been spending several years now in Indonesia trying to understand what's going on in, in a city which is becoming increasingly unequal. Um, and, and, and there's been something of a, of, of a sea change, which is both social and geographical. So when, I, we first, when Helga and I first went there in the 1980s, it was kind of a symbiotic, if still unequal, relationship between people who were middle-class families then and the urban majority, the people who really had no access to regular employment or, or to formal housing. So the, the, let's call this the urban majority. The urban majority, at that point in time, were characters who live more or less alongside middle-class families, and there were economic relationships connecting them together, relationships through which middle-class families would buy products made in the informal sector as salesmen come to their door, would hire people from these communities as maids, as cleaners, as drivers, as guards, creating economic opportunities, but also uh, an appreciation for the circumstances of the urban poor from the perspective of the middle class and vice versa. These were unequal relationships in this, in, 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 Yes, a job is being created for somebody who, who, who's, going, who's hired to drive the pedicab owned as a money-making proposition by the middle-class family, but the middle-class family gets more out of that than the, than, than the pedicab driver does. Ne nevertheless, there are, there are kinds of economic opportunities that, that emerge through this kind of symbiosis. What has happened in the 30 years since then is that the middle-class families are withdrawing into essentially gated residential developments where they no longer have contact with the urban poor. Um, those opportunities for work for people in, in the urban majority are disappearing, as, uh, uh, and attitudes towards the poor from the middle class are, are changing dramatically, rather than having these daily interactions with one another through which the middle class can appreciate both the struggles, but also the, the ability to work and, 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 to, be, and to make, uh, make something of yourself in, among the urban majority. Now they're sitting in, in these gated spaces where the urban majority from this perspective are just a bunch of people who failed to become middle class and it's their problem. So as the Groups are space separated, segregated geographically as the interactions between them disappear more or less. All of a sudden, we have a society which is both so, has both social and increasing economic divides that are happening. And from this perspective, from the point of view of, of people in the urban majority, the best sort of way to address these challenges they face themselves is to, is to um, is to create informal economic and, and, and social relationships, look out to, to help one another out in the campaigns, to make sure that a family that doesn't have food in a particular week, somebody brings, brings them food, because the, the same will happen to you later, um, to, to, to create informal employment opportunities of both, on both large and, and small scales. Um, but nevertheless, we see this gulf happening, and, and I should also say that this middle class now is much, much larger proportion of the population than it was 30 years ago. Um, so, and also politically more influential. And, 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 and yeah, and, and, and this has both cultural and economic, negative cultural and economic consequences in terms of how the urban majority is regarded 
not just by the middle class, but by the city government, um, who, who are happy to blame them for all kinds of things which they're not responsible for. Um, but also the economic inequalities which are being compounded at the same time. Who do you think poverty researchers uh, and teachers should be collaborating with now? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, the, the, the important point I want to make here is, is the importance of collaborating. So let's, let's separate these out, teaching and research, right? So in terms of research and trying to understand, intervene in an impoverishment in, in, in productive ways, I think it's really important to be collaborating with people who are living in impoverished ways, right? So we, we've, we've developed in geography certain kinds of languages, methodological languages for describing this, such as participant action research, this notion of working with people rather than just studying those people, ideas that come very much out of sort of feminist methodological thinking in and beyond geography. So, so a, a really important group of people to be collaborating with in terms of research are the people who find themselves impoverished, whose perspectives and knowledge and expertise of making good of their situations is something that um, I think is, is, is a perspective which, which far, it makes it far too little into the academic ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. and, and this means rethinking our own practices of how we go about research. I would say, based on my experience, in limited experience of doing this, that this is certainly not, it's much easier to say this than to do it. I mean, it sounds, it sounds beautiful in principle. It's very hard to, to, to realize in practice. One reason it's hard to realize in practice is that these folks are busy. Why should they take time out of their <laughs> lives, time they need to support themselves, to, um, to sort of work with some academic who's parachuted in there from somewhere else, right, and is going to go back to their much better lives afterwards. And part of it is because... Um, of the discourses we have that say that expertise is located in some sense in the educated classes and the academy and the impoverished people don't have expertise, otherwise they wouldn't be impoverished, right? Um, uh, so, so, and that's, that sort of discursive framing is very much internalized by people living in poverty. See, when I arrive in these communities and say, you're the expert, you tell me what we should be doing, right? So, so it's trying to get beyond those things, and it's, and, it's, and it's very difficult to do. But nevertheless, I think that's a really important. I, I would really prioritize that as, 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 as a set of kinds of collaborations taking us out of the academy, uh, re-sort of try, trying to work to get that kind of work valued by the institutions in which we work, right? So how, how can I... How can I if I do that kind of work, will it get me tenure? In right. the same way that, um, let's say, doing policy work for the Urban Foundation would be regarded as, as, as something which, which would be appropriate to get me tenure. That's a struggle that we have to play out in the institutions as well as in our lives. In terms of teaching, um, I, I, I guess what I would say is that we should not minimize... Uh, as academics, so the, we should not minimize 
the influence we can have in the classroom on how people think about these things. And, the, and, and, and as they take those, that thinking with them into their everyday lives, there are all kinds of ways in which uh, what we just see in the classroom may be having um, important effects beyond there as a result of what students have learned um, through the way in which we, we, we teach them to think about questions of, of impoverishment and poverty. But that's not usually thought of as a collaboration, is it? This is thought of as, as a, although active pedagogy can again break down that hierarchy. I, I, I mean, I, I think that, uh, again, something which would be important to do and, and we do far too little of and we are not, in some sense, incentivized to do in the, given the nature of universities, particularly these days, is going out and teaching outside the university, doing, for example, teaching in community centers and worker centers um, as a process not of going there to pontificate and give people the answers, but going there to create an environment in which we can teach one another. But both taking our ideas and thinking out of the academy and, and exposing it to the perspectives of um, people who never had a chance to get into the academy, they can't afford to go to college or they don't have the educational sort of background to, to go to college. And again, do this in a way which um, is more collaborative than how we normally think about teaching, a, a, of an opportunity for, the, for us to learn from their perspectives, even as we also have things to, to bring to that conversation. That, uh, that would be where I would think about that. So I, I guess if you sort of summarize this together, it really is about getting outside the ivory tower mm -hmm. uh, and about taking seriously the expertise, perspectives, and entrepreneurial uh, acuity of, of people who we think of as impoverished. So I want to uh, loop back to that um, relocating the expertise outside of the academy uh, and think of that uh, or, or try and think of that also relationally. We talked about sort of uh, thinking relationally in terms of informality earlier about uh, or one of the ways in which we can do that is to use lessons learned in the global south to think about uh, the global north. <clears throat> but I also want to think about how um, how we might uh, draw upon the expertise in marginalized spaces. You know, we talked a little earlier about uh, the informal social and economic networks that, that form uh, in marginalized spaces. Um, how to make that or how to bring that or make it a viable, valid um, way of understanding majority spaces. Um, I think one of, the, one of the things that often gets critiqued in sort of analysis of informal spaces is, well, yeah, that might happen there in that space, but here in this formalized space where there are laws and, and capitalism, that could never work, right? That sort of social network. Right. So how might we use that expertise to speak back to our common narratives of the economy and politics? Okay. Well, I mean, here, from so my perspective on this question is, is, is closely informed by the work of J.K. K. Gibson Graham and other people in what's known as the Community Economies Collective, 
we've done a lot of work to try and make visible to us, but also to the people they are often collaborating with, ways in which we already live uh, and, and pursue economic livelihoods that are not part of the capitalist economy. You, know, you can go immediately, of course, to um, un forms of unpaid labor that contribute to economic welfare, such as maintaining the household and, and issues of, of, uh, brought up by, by feminist e economists, but also all of the kinds of, of trans economic transactions we're involved in that are not captured as monetary transactions in capitalism and therefore not in some sense counted as part of the economy. Uh, this ranges for, from helping your neighbor fix their bathroom to um, growing food in the backyard, which you share with people, to some locals, what are called local uh, employment and trading schemes, whereby there are formal arrangements for, in, in, in some cities for, for these for these kinds of, of, of barter trade and so on, uh, including labor. So, so Ithaca, New York, for example, have, has had this system whereby you can offer your hours of expertise in exchange to do one thing in exchange for your neighbor's hours of expertise to do something else. And you trade this in terms of, of hours rather than in terms of money. So the argument here is that capitalism while it's quite hegemonic in shaping how we think, induces us to not think about certain kinds of things we do as part of the economy. Um, and those are precisely the kinds of things which enable people to survive in communities where they don't have access to money or, to, or, or, to, uh, or, or, or where informality is pervasive enough um, that, that it becomes... Uh, an central means of livelihood rather than something that you happen to be doing but don't really think of as, as economic. So, so again, back to this question of what do we mean by impoverishment? We mean by impoverishment, if we mean by impoverishment, not how much money you have, but um, whether you can achieve your livelihood possibilities. And we think about it not just in terms of the individual, but in terms of networks that connect people together to cooperate in doing this, right? Rather than me bringing my body to a competitive labor market and how much money do I get for, 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 for the labor that I provide. So if we, so if we, if we again, think of impoverishment in this much broader sense of, of, of an inability to achieve your livelihood possibilities, then, um, uh, the, the, then we can see how that way of thinking about the economy isn't necessarily just about the market and how much money you have and what you sell it good for. Economics is about producing stuff. It's about consuming stuff. It's about distributing the benefits associated with being able to do that. And there's no reason that all of that stuff has to be done through capitalist market transactions. Right. Absolutely. And I think sort of, just to spell out what you said a little bit, I think when you when you talked about impoverishment, meaning uh, uh, ability to attain livelihood, mm -hmm. right? I think livelihood in there is is con contains the idea that one's livelihood is not necessarily tied up with market exchange, but also relationships of of, of care and belonging and and well being. That's right, and even those mar those, those market exchange need need not be capitalist markets. Right. <laughs> so, so again, uh, 
trade, barter trade, uh, trading what I can do for what you can do on, on, on local basis, whether it's informal through your, through your sort of family and neighborhood connections or it's organized into a formal way, of, alternative way of doing things. These are market transactions, but they're not capitalist market transactions. And I think that's also an important distinction to bear in mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, back to that. put a number on this for a second. So if we, if we look at the labor that is done to, uh, um, to maintain a household, to allow, enable people to go to work, to enable their kids to get educated and to enter the workforce, all of those things we conventionally think of as part of capitalism. I mean, feminist economists have sat down and said, okay, well, if we paid the people who are largely women who are doing that household labor a, 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 an appropriate wage, um, that would add some, the estimates vary, but 40 to 60% to the value of the national economy. And so, the, the, and so we, these things are there, and, and, and we should, again, not be thinking about them as, okay, well, that's what we should do. We would pay women, and not, I mean, not that women shouldn't be paid, but, but <laughs> the, the, the solution is to, to incorporate all of this into the norms of the capitalist economy, but also to look at it as spaces to do things differently. And if, if the capitalist economy were capable of delivering on its promise that everybody who behaves appropriately can become rich and every place that does things right will become wealthy, we wouldn't be having these discussions. We'd all be happy with capitalism, but it's, all, it's entirely because globalizing capitalism is unable, and I would say congenitally unable to deliver on its promise that our imaginaries of how this system works are so at variance with, with, with the reality that, that, that we need these alternative spaces and, and we need to take them seriously. Yeah, absolutely. But I want to continue on the vein of who we should be working with. We talked a little bit about um, things like participatory action research and, and bringing in the expertise uh, from outside the academy. There's currently also a, a popular adage uh, in poverty studies that says we can't end poverty by studying poor people. Um, and, and some have taken some have taken this to mean uh, more attention should be paid to large macro structural things, uh, while others understand this as a call to pay closer attention to uh, the presuppositions and practices of, of middle class actors or of the poverty management industry. And I wonder what you see as both the promises and pitfalls of this sort of studying up. I, mean, I, I, I would certainly endorse the idea that if we want to understand impoverishment, we have to be looking at the other end of this dialectic, if we were, this relationship. Um, because if, if, we, if we see impoverishment as, as significantly connected to enrichment or created through enrichment of, of others, we need to understand how those processes work. And so it really is, and, and, and it really does involve, um, that does involve studying the rich and, how, and understanding how the rich became rich, but again, not in this individualistic sort of way of doing so, but in, this, in, in, in understanding how enrichment here is linked to impoverishment there. But with the focus on trying to understand those relationships. Mm -hmm. um, so studying up, I think, is important, but, 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 it, 
one of the difficulties, I, I sort, of, sort of mental difficulties here is in some ways it's easy, I mean, it's easier to study up because we're, we're talking to people who are more like us. Uh, of course, we, there are challenges. Will they talk to us? Will, will, and, and, and can you get access? And, and, and are they going to take you seriously or just spin you some kind of tail? I mean, nevertheless, I think because academics are in some sense part of the middle class, it's easier to study that end of things than the other end of things. So, yes, it's important, but the optic always has to be on understanding impoverishment through doing this rather than just studying up for its own sake. And, 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 and both of these, I mean, both of these matters. So this doesn't mean that every individual has to both study up and study down, but as we create these networks and, um, and I mean, this is also a form of collaboration, which I didn't really talk about, is, is, which is bringing academics together from different parts of the world to, to share the, the, their perspectives and enrich our, our, our thinking and understanding. Um, but, 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 but through those networks, you, you, you want to make sure that, that, that both ends of this optic are being kept in view and we're not just studying up and, and kind of forget why you're doing it. Yes. I mean, when it comes to the poverty industry, I think that's, that there, that that's another set of issues because I, I think the poverty, so, so, so these, these various kinds of organizations that, that set themselves up to solve poverty, whether it's the Gates Foundation or... Um, or, or the World Bank, or, or whatever, um, are really important actors in shaping the broader conditions, shaping the way in which poverty is conceptualized and talked about. Um, and discourses matter here, right? So let's go to the places where those discourses are being created and circulated and understand how that's happening uh, and hopefully try and intervene uh, as, as a sort of proactive researcher in those spaces to to um, to propagate other kinds of ways of thinking, which they have the power to disseminate. I mean, there's certainly uh, I haven't done this myself, but people, for example, who've, who've gone to sort of talk to people in the World Bank, they're no longer no the, the, the individuals. They are a much more heterogeneous group of people than we characterize them as, and 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 some of that heterogeneity is space for them to think about things. In, in different kinds of ways. So, so for those institutions, kinds of institutions are important also both to study and to engage with because they sort of propagate the norms and the sort of take conventions and the taken for granted assumptions through which, which induces to think about impoverishment and its causes in, in particular ways. So this question is, I think, purposefully vaguely worded. So, so we can discuss what was meant here. But um, <clears throat> the question is, what are what what are priority actions we should be taking to resist exclusionary trends? Yeah. I, I, so the first question here is, what do we mean by exclusionary trends? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, as you say, it's a, it, it's a pretty broad ranging question. I'm going to take exclusionary trends to mean the ways in which the relationships between those who are well off and those places that are well off and those people and places that are, that are seen as impoverished um, 
prevent uh, the latter from achieving their um, uh, conditions of possibility for a decent life. Right? Um, I mean, that's a hard question to answer right? because I think there are some there are so many aspects of this. I think I would circle back here to some of the things we've talked about before. We need to understand how those processes, of, the impact of those processes of exclusion on people's livelihood possibilities mm -hmm. and be open to the possibility that those, inf those consequences are not always unremittingly negative. For example, uh, for people to be excluded from private ownership through redlining or through uh, the enormous cost and difficulty of acquiring, say, private ownership in a place like in an informal settlement in Jakarta, where you have to bribe the national land agency before they'll even take you seriously. Um, those kinds of exclusions can be seen of seen as as, a, as as negative, but they can also have some unexpected consequences. They can push people to look for alternative ways of doing things outside that framework that can actually be, be, be beneficial, right? Um, so so I, think, I think we need to think a lot more about what we mean by exclusion here and, and, and what its consequences are. Um, but it's also about really trying to look at, I mean, I suppose both locally and, and I mean, like, again, look, look at discourses and practices which create these kinds of constraints, mm -hmm. um, and, and and look at how and be be thinking about the ways in which those may also be shifting. In one of the things which goes on in Kampungs, for example, is yes, we have these informal livelihood practices and 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 and, and so on, but they're not necessarily wonderful spaces where everybody's collaborating with one another. <laughs> Uh, the, the writings of Abdulmalik Simon on Jakarta and also on various African cities are very helpful in this respect. And it's because he points out that, that these kinds of informal spaces have their own patriarchies and hierarchies and, and, mm. and, and uh, sort of mafioso types of figures. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's not, it's, informality does not suddenly automatically create an environment in which everybody's going to do better. It's really complicated. And so yeah. you can have exclusions of various kinds here within the informal sector. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really tough question. I don't, think, I don't think I have a really good answer for it. But, I, think, <laughs> but I, I, I do think it's something we need to be thinking carefully about. What do we mean by exclusion? What are its relationships to what we mean by impoverishment? And, and what are the consequences of exclusion here in terms of its effects on on other ways in which people might might sort of pursue to improve their livelihoods. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's there's issues of scale at work there as well. I, um, I, I'm reminded of this sort of powerful moment uh, during or immediate in, in literally the hours immediately following the, um, the Trump election <clears throat> where there was a, a spontaneous um gathering in front of civic center in san francisco and amidst these signs of, of love trump's hate and and resisting uh exclusion um i got a text from a friend at city hall that said a ballot measure had passed to unilaterally make homeless encampments exclusion uh, or 
make homeless campments unilaterally illegal before it had been on a one-off sort of basis. And so you have these uh, levels of exclusion and levels of exclusion that happen on different axes, right? There's a, there's a proximity issue, but there's also a, um, you talked a little bit about the gap between in, in Jakarta, between the middle class and the, uh, poor and that gap being both spatial and discursive. Um, but I think all of these sort of levels of things, uh, become part of that. Um, so one of the things that's I mean, happening is happening in Jakarta is that as developers build these very ambitious and spectacular projects for the urban middle class, in which they it's not these are not just residential. This is not a gated community, Southern California style of a, of a bunch of people who built a wall around their residential development. These are full fledged communities. They, the developers offer everything. There's there's there's, there's, there's housing. There's shopping. There's there's, there's work, there's, um, there's churches, there's schools, there's an English language university. They have cities in and of themselves. And the developers imagine is that people are going to move in here and never want to go outside, right? <laughs> what we're creating here is a self-exclusion, right? So the middle class are excluding themselves from a city which they have come to think of and is more excluding themselves, increasingly think of as being a chaotic place they don't want to be part of. One thing that's happening in Indonesia although this is uh, sort of politically controversial, is, is that they're, literally, they're building islands offshore because uh, Jakarta is a coastal city. They're, building, they're reclaiming land offshore so they can literally just have a bridge there and nobody else can come in and they'll have their own city there. So, so, so exclusion is happening in that kind of way. Uh, uh, self, yeah, self-exclusion to sort of separate yourselves from the people you don't like. That's also, of course, excluding those people. But then, I mean, it's creating, what are the consequences of that? So is ex to be, ex I mean, if you're in relationships with people that are relationships that are impoverishing you, to be excluded from those relationships isn't necessarily a bad thing, even though in the short run, it's extremely problematic. Yeah, uh, I agree. Those kinds of, of dynamics, I, I, I think we, we just don't, that really is an important area of, of, of conceptual and empirical work. Yeah, I, I agree. That and uh, the idea, I hear this sort of in what you were saying, what you were saying earlier about the, the poverty management industry, um, to pay attention to the idea that exclusion is also not always malevolent. You know, it's not always not in my backyard. Um, you know, when we talk about uh, here in the U.S., for instance, and the the disbandment of encampments because of an outbreak of, of Hep A down there, or here uh, the narrative of disbandment of encampments is around um, living standards. People can't live like that. It's unsafe. It's unsanitary. And you know, I, th I think you also see that in the language of development. We can't allow these spaces. Uh, because we are acting in the best sort of progressive imaginary in the best interests of uh, the excluded. And I think what you're, what you're highlighting here is that, yeah, but we also have to realize uh, what, what that sort of what we might call benevolent or progressive exclusion, what sorts of possibilities that forecloses. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's right. <laughs> well, you're supposed to say more than that. <laughs> Again, I, I, I mean, 
so we can, I mean, one form of uh, alternative living that exists in some European cities are what in an American context we might call a kind of squatting, where people collectively occupy urban space uh, that is not being used productively by others and, and, and use that as a space to pursue uh, a communal form of living um, that, that, that doesn't conform with capitalist norms. Um, and the, we, we, the, the presumption always is that that's a bad thing because capitalism can benefit everybody, and so exclusion from capitalism is in some sense the source of all of your problems. Um, but, but if capitalism is not delivering on this, on this cannot deliver on this promise of, of, of prosperity for all um, who behave appropriately, um, then your, your alternative is to carve out these alternative spaces. And, then, and these are, again, defended by these groups quite vigorously. There's also Christianistat in, in, in Copenhagen is an example of this, where you literally carve out space in the, in the city to try and do things on your own terms, rather than be drawn into relationships which undermine your livelihood possibilities. And so, and yeah, so, so, so it, it, as I said, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here. The more I think about the question, the more interesting it becomes because we, we, we really need to think carefully about, A, what do we mean by exclusion? And B, what are the consequences of exclusion without a knee-jerk reaction to say that exclusion is always necessarily bad? Once again, if... If the relation, if the relationships are inclu of inclusion are impoverishing you, <laughs> then is is exclusion going to make it worse? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, final question, or at least the final one I have written down here, and, and I think this is uh, sort of pointed at the future is what. In this moment, uh, would you consider the priority keywords for uh, critical poverty studies? Uh -huh. I, I mean, I, I think collaboration is certainly such a keyword in all the ways that we've talked about collaboration in terms of, of collaboration between researchers and the communities and people who's, who who are living in what we think of as impoverished circumstances, as well as collaboration between academics studying these things in different parts of the world, which is a raison d'etre in a way for the relational poverty networks. So collaboration is really important. Um, I think uh, more than capitalist practices I would, is, is, is really important. Uh, of which informality is often the sort of shorthand term for that. But I, what, what I'm trying to emphasize here is that is, is, is ways in which people can live differently, even though you never quite escape the capitalism that you're trying to sort of escape. You know what I mean? So the people can live in a squat in Berlin, but they still have to sometimes go and buy food from the local store, for example or somebody has to get a job to support them for a certain period of time. So more, rather than non-capitalist, I would use the phrase more than capitalist practices. I, I would say um, poverty discourses um, is, is an important keyword, that we don't just keep the emphasis on practice, but we understand how practices are shaped by the ways in which we think. Um, and, and I guess an 
for gang it's a, it's a poor word to use but 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 in some sense diversity so we really have to understand um the 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 the, first of all, the diversities of populations themselves, these issues are not just about class, they're about race, they're about gender, and all kinds of other aspects of our social positionality, right? And how those play out and, and, and intersect with issues of impoverishment, discourses of race and, and practices of impoverishment, for an obvious example. But also diversity in a kind of geographical sense, as I said before, that understanding... Uh, not, not trying to impose one set of theoretical concepts on all places, but trying to theorize from the, from different places and put those different theorizations in conversation with one another, which brings us back to collaboration. So, so diversity in all of those senses, I, 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 I think is really important. Absolutely. So again, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, this has been a really enjoyable conversation. I've learned a lot. So I'll, I'll bet the, the RPN people will as well. Um, <clears throat> I guess, I don't know, any last words? No, I don't think I've ever enjoyed this very much. Actually, it's been good for me to sort of sit down and try and think through these issues. So I've learned a lot from, from, from the opportunity to do this. And, and well, I, fantastic. Yeah. All right, well, you have a great day and uh, and thank you again for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, thanks for doing this, Tony. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.